Okay, so we, on Sunday nights, we go right through the Bible. We started in Genesis. We're all the way in Ezekiel. And we are in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. We are getting up there in the Ezekiel chapters. So let's pray before we begin. Father, I just thank you so much for just being able to begin and end the day with the word open before our eyes, Lord. And we believe with all our heart that your word is living and active. Every word including that which we're going to read this evening. I pray in Jesus' name, please help us with understanding. Fill us with the Holy Spirit. I just pray just for myself, Lord, that even as I receive, I'm able to give out. That I wouldn't be a hindrance to people learning your heart for them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34. Now, up until Ezekiel chapter 33, Ezekiel had been prophesying. He's prophesying in Babylon. Jeremiah is prophesying at the same time in Jerusalem. And they're looking forward in time, prophesying to the time where Jerusalem would be destroyed. So the kings in Israel had been reigning for about 450 years. Temple, a little, a few years had been built a few years after after that, so about, the temple had been in place about 400 years. Israelites just felt they had a corner on God. Surely God would never let Jerusalem fall. That's his, it's like God's country, we use that phrase, right? Well, Jerusalem was God's city, it was Zion. And there had been so many promises. Now, there had been promises to David, with it, which the, the Jews were well aware of, that someone would reign on the, the throne or that his throne would reign forever. And we know, looking back, that that is a reference to Jesus and the Messiah and that the throne of David began the line of the Messiah. But they took things like that. They took for granted, no matter what happened, God would never let Jerusalem fall. In fact, remember, probably about 150 years before the fall of Jerusalem, the Assyrians had come in and conquered everything else, everything else in Israel except Jerusalem, 
but they were turned back because Hezekiah and Isaiah went before the Lord. And so they had that in their history too. It's like, surely that, among so many other things, is a sign that Jerusalem's never going to fall. But their sin had been getting progressively worse. Their rebellion against the Lord progressively worse. Jeremiah and Ezekiel began to warn them. And uh, finally, and up to Ezekiel chapter 33, it's, it's, it's Ezekiel and Jeremiah warning about the fall of Jerusalem. From 33 on, it, it looks forward after the fall of Jerusalem. Why? Because in verse 21 and 22 of Ezekiel chapter 33, they get news that Jerusalem has been destroyed. Jerusalem's been destroyed. The king has been captured. That it's the people have been killed. Uh, a third of the people, just as Ezekiel had prophesied in earlier chapters, a third of the people were killed. A third were uh, dispersed to um, you know, all par- all parts of uh, of the world. The city had been uh, uh, a third of them had been exiled to Babylon, and so. Uh, from now on, it's looking more forward. And one of the, in, 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 in Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel takes up one of the terrible failures that the people of Israel had, and that was their shepherds. He says in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherd, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up uh, the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. And so who is he speaking to here? So Bible commentators disagree as to who the shepherds are. Some think that... uh, probably most think that these are referring to kings. David in Psalm 78 is referred to the shepherd of Israel. At the time, kings were sometimes called uh, shepherds, even in pagan pagan monarchies. But uh, I believe it's really talking mostly about the Levites, the priests, the spiritual leaders of Israel. The reason I think that is because at this time that 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 uh, uh, Ezekiel is sharing this, both of the shepherds are in jail in the dungeon in Babylon. One, Zechariah, the son of Josiah, he had had his eyes plucked out by the king of Babylon. All his kids, right before that, all his sons were killed before him, and he was dragged back to... uh, dragged back to Babylon in chains just as had been prophesied of him. The grandson of Josiah, Jehoiachin. I hope by now you have all these kings memorized. Jehoiachin, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim. 
unbelievable. I am, I've been at this in Jeremiah and Ezekiel for, for months now, and I I'm still get them confused. But Jehoiachin, he is also in a dungeon. I believe he's talking to Levites and priests here. He's, he's speaking to them. But you know something? He's also speaking to you. You know why? Because you have a sphere of influence in a way you're a shepherd in your own life. And I, I tell you, I was, uh, I was off in one of my prayer walks in the middle of the woods uh, in Dover, and I took out this verse, and I really reflected on it. Verse 4, the weak, this is, the, the, this is what the Lord says of these shepherds these bad shepherds. It really spoke to me, being a pastor, pastor is a shepherd. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. Now this says something about how you shepherd your children, how you, if you're in ministry, how you shepherd the, the people underneath you in ministry, how even, you know, if you're a manager or really any, anybody who you have influence over, it really, it lists five things. Number one, strengthening the weak is the heart of the Lord. Strengthening the weak. There, for reasons that we only know in the heart of God, the weak, the oppressed, the alien, the foreigner, the orphan, have just a special place in the heart of God. Strengthening the weak. Number two, healing those who are sick. And praise the Lord that... It, it is because of Christianity that there is, that, like, even the concept of a hospital existed. You go back two or 3,000 years, there's no, even the concept of a hospital didn't exist. There were physicians, but hospitals were a product over time of, of, of Christian outreaches gathering in the sick. This is what a shepherd does they heal the sick. They bind up what is broken. They bring back what was driven away. They seek what was lost. They bind up what is broken. They bring back what was driven away. So much of what we do as shepherds, Satan has, Satan has driven away a purpose, a calling, a, a plan that the Lord had for someone's life and he's just driven it away. And it's, it's bringing back into a person's life that hope, that love that was driven away, that, that sense of security that was driven away. It's bringing back, it's nurturing them, it's feeding them the word of God, it's, it's, it's blessing them, bringing back what was dr- driven away, binding up what was broken. It's just incredible to me 
how broken our society is. You know, Albert and I were just talking this afternoon. Your average marriage that takes place in the church, people are bringing in so much baggage into the relationship because they're broken. But the Lord has given us tools the word of God and all kinds of spiritual gifts promised to the church to bind up what is broken. I love this last one, though. It says, it says but with force and cruelty, you have uh, ruled them. And so what's the opposite of force? So think of a shepherd. What's the opposite of force? It's faith. Meaning you don't control people. You don't try to control people's behavior. People will always make choices that are not good for them, that are underneath you as a shepherd. Happens every day. Has happened today. <laughs> you know? And, and you can either see it and try to twist their arm into doing the right thing, or you can just live by faith and pray that the Lord is in control and he's going to do a work in their life force and cruelty. What's the opposite of cruelty? Kindness. So faith and kindness. That's how we shepherd people. Now is there a time? Paul refers to the whole concept of a severe rebuke. Yes, there is. But that is clearly, clearly, clearly the exception to the rule. So I, I don't know. I was just really excited to, to read that. I love that verse. It really teaches me a lot about how to be a pastor and what happens when pastors don't uh, or, or shepherd in such a way that they're not strengthening the weak, they're not binding up the broken, they're not bringing back what was driven away. Verse five, the sheep scattered. Verse six, my sheep wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. My flock was scattered over the face of the earth and no one was seeking or searching them. This is just re referencing uh, the, when the Assyrians came in and the northern ten tribes and took over and Israelites were sent all over the world, literally. It's also speaking of in, when Nebuchadnezzar came in in about 586 B.C. and destroyed Jerusalem. They just fled and they went all over uh, the place, uh, just fleeing for their lives. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord, surely because my flock became a prey meaning that you know, they sort of scattered and then they become the prey of anything out there that is messed up. So when, for example, and I hate to pick on pastors, but I'll just pick on them anyway. If a pastor falls into an adultery, there's people in the church who don't have the maturity level to handle that, and they say, that's it, I'm it with, uh, the, you know, I, I, I've had it with church, and they go out into the world. They are become prey to anything and everything that's out there. That's what this is referring to. They, because they scattered, they, my flock became a prey, and my flock became food for every beast of the field. That's really awful imagery there. Because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. 
Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to, uh, I, I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep. And the shepherds shall feed themselves no more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. So part of the reason Israel fell was because of the lack of shepherding. The Lord here is saying, and he's going to be saying for the rest of this chapter, he's, there's going to be a great renewal of the spiritual leadership of Israel. And we see that in, in, in Nehemiah. He was a governor, but also Ezra and some of the other folks that are going to come in, but also just Levites we've never even heard of that, that the Lord raised up. The Bible says, it says this in the book of Revelation, that if, if, if shepherds aren't doing their job, God, God will move the candlestick from them and give uh, it to someone else. It says in verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flocks on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloud and dark day. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them out of the countries and will bring them to their own land I will feed them in the mountains of Israel and the valleys and in all the inhabitant, uh, inhabited places of uh, the country. Now, this is a, pro- a prophecy right here how, uh, regarding how the Israelites, the Jews who had been scattered all over the world will come back into the country. It's not now about... F- 50, 60 years from this time, at the end of the 70-year exile period, Jews would move back into um, Israel, but there would still be sort of government over them. It wouldn't be their own land. This is not a reference to that. This is a reference to 1948. 1948. You know, you can read. These are the type of verses right here in Ezekiel chapter 34 that the Jews read about believing right up until the, the 20th century, believing God has said in his word that there's going to be a regathering, and they believed it. I remember reading this novel uh, by George Eliot, who, whose name was George, but it's a woman. She wrote in the late 19th century, and it was just part of the, one of the characters in the book was this guy, this Zionist, going to Israel because he was convinced that God was going to answer this kind of promise right here. And it's really neat when you read some of these, some of these uh, commentators in the 19th century, uh, when you run across them and they say, I, we don't really get this, this makes no sense whatsoever, but according to this, someday the Israelites are going to go back and they're going to have a nation of their own. And so now we, we're starting even to take it for granted now because it, it happened in, in the year 1948 and then 1967, the area expanded. But there is yet another manifestation of this and that is when Jesus Christ comes himself. It says in verse 14, I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel there. They shall lie down on a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down. Says the Lord God. You know the wonderful thing about the Lord? 
is that he makes us lie down. God makes us lie down. In Psalm 23, it says, um, you all are familiar with this. Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. The wonderful thing about the Lord. And if it takes us him afflicting us with sickness, and he will do that. The Bible says he will do that for the purpose of getting us to lie down and cool out. He will do it. He makes us lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still water. The Lord is my shepherd, Jehovah Ra'ah. It's probably pronounced Raha, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but he is our shepherd. Verse 16, I will seek what was lost. So here we go again. It's the reverse of verse 4. I will seek what was lost. Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what, is, what was sick. So a contrast to verse 4. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. And as for you, O oh my flock. So now the Lord is addressing his children. And although this was... Uh, this was given specifically to Israel. It's perfectly, biblically, permissible, appropriate, and justified to put ourselves in the shoes of, of the flock. We are sheep of his pastor, we're told that. And so this is for you, this is for me. The, the next few verses, it says, Oh, my flock, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between ram and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture and to have drunk of clear waters that you must follow the residue with your feet? As for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet. They drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and lean sheep because you have pushed with side and shoulder butted all the weak ones with your horns and scatter them. Therefore, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey. We're not just going to be out there at the whim of all the beasts in the world. I will, I, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. So sheep look like sheep. <laughs> but some sheep are not sheep, really. They're not the chosen sheep. People know how to come into church and play make pretend and behave like a sheep. But he's saying twice here, I shall judge between sheep and sheep. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not all of you who say to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is above. And so a sheep will manifest him or herself by doing the will of God. I will establish, and therefore I will save my flock, verse 22, and shall no longer be a prey. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. You know, 
one of the things that we, you can take from this chapter is that never mind the, the weaknesses and flaws of your pastor or any shepherd that you've had in your life or, or if there's someone you know, you have family and friends that they're just sort of wandering around because of some church scandal and they seem to be a prey. This says if they're born again, God himself he says, I myself, in verse 20, I'll get the job done. I myself will get the job done. I, I will uh, save, verse 22, my flock. And then he says in verse 23, and I will establish one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them, my servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And so, again, a reference here is, in the prophets in the Old Testament, sometimes there's an immediate a prophecy that is fulfilled in the immediate future. Sometimes it's near term. Sometimes it's long term. Sometimes it's latter days. And here, it, there seems to be a combination that the prophets were not really able oftentimes to distinguish at what stage their prophecy was uh, you know, w- w- pertain to or what error? Well, we see already some of this prophecy being fulfilled, but ultimately it is going to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe uh, this is a reference to Jesus here. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. My servant David, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, shall be their God, my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So now this is where Ezekiel kind of gets interesting. We know from Jeremiah, there's references, actually Jeremiah and Isaiah, references to the branch. And actually in Jeremiah 23, also a chapter which begins Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah's 900 miles away, prophesying the same thing by the Holy Spirit, saying the same thing through Jeremiah in Jerusalem as Ezekiel who is prophesying, prophesying to the Jews who are in exile 900 miles away in Babylon. Jeremiah 23 begins very similar to uh, this chapter in Ezekiel. It says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep. But then he goes on a few verses later and says, behold, the days are coming, I will raise to David a branch. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely, and Israel will dwell safely under his shepherding, a reference to Messiah's shepherd. Now, the interesting thing about Ezekiel, it's not quite as easy because as we get into the later chapters, and I'll just introduce this to you right now, there's, also, there's, there's not only a reference to a shepherd, there's also a reference to a prince. Now in Ezekiel 37, it repeats, David my servant shall be king over them. Okay. But then you go into the next chapter in Ezekiel 44, verse 3, and it says, as for the prince, because he is the prince, Uh, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord, speaking uh, in the temple, in the sanctuary. 
So there's a, there's a reference to a prince. But then what gets really confusing is chapter 45. It says, and on that day, the prince shall prepare for himself and for all the people a sin offering. So right there, that cannot be Jesus. And in Ezekiel 45, Jesus doesn't prepare for himself a sin offering. He has no sin. The Bible is really clear that Messiah won't have sin. In the next chapter, there's the reference to the same prince, Ezekiel 46, uh, verse 16. It says, Thus says the Lord God, If the prince gives a gift of some of his inheritance to any of his sons, it is their possession by inheritance. So you have commentators saying different things about who this prince is. Some people believe this prince in the latter part of Ezekiel and even the chapter that we're in today is going to be David himself, resurrected from the dead. He's going to have his family reigning with him because there's reference to his sons reigning with him. Uh, I've heard that before. In fact, I heard that once here in this church. Uh, someone was saying that. Not, they weren't teaching from the pulpit or anything like that. But um, there are people who believe such things uh, that David uh, is already alive and ready to reign uh, in, in Jerusalem. I believe personally that if you look through this, and it's important that you don't rely on me, that you get in on your own. I believe that there's a distinction between the shepherd and my servant David in chapter 34 where he says, I will establish one shepherd over them. There's a distinction between that and this prince who's going to rule apparently in the millennial reign after the return of Christ. And... One of the reasons, I won't go too far into this, but in chapter 45, it, re- it refers to the princes, plural, of Israel. And it, it, it appears that this prince is just going to be a, some kind of prince, some kind of governor in Jerusalem. When Jesus rules in the millennial reign, there will be a government that's all subject to his authority. And so uh, Jesus is going to be reigning as king overall. But I believe there's... the the references later on in Ezekiel are referring to other princes. This seems to be very consistent with chapter 20. Chapter 34 of Ezekiel seems to be very consistent with chapter 23 of Jeremiah. Starts off speaking against the shepherds who had just really ruined the flock but goes into a clear reference, at least in Jeremiah 23, of the branch the shepherd of Israel. And I I believe that that's what this is referring to. It says, verse 24, I, the Lord, will be their God, my servant David, a prince among them. So there it goes. That's why he's referred to here as a prince. And that's why commentators don't all agree on the rest of Ezekiel. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land. So here, Clearly a reference to millennial reign where there's just going to be God's spirit is going to pour out on the whole earth and there's even going to be peace in the animal kingdom. Look at this. And they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Now some of you are like, well, that's really cool. Uh, That's what I like doing today. 
but others of you are like, I don't think so. Uh, I'm not going to be sleeping in the woods. Well, it'll be perfectly okay. Uh, Scott and I were talking. He's going to go up and visit his father in Alaska, and he's going to go sleep with the grizzly bears in, uh, in the middle of the Alaskan wilderness. And so, uh-oh, Amy's here. Um, I, did you know that was happening? Okay. Are you going to be with them? Okay. So um, <laughs> you'll be protected as a family. Just think of this right here, that uh, God is beginning to fulfill this promise uh, even before the millennial reign is established. But anyway, verse 26 says, I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season. There shall be showers of blessing. Okay, I always wondered, like, grace like rain, where did that come from, that song? Maybe this is it. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 26. Showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield their increase. They shall be safe in the land. They shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And I think I've mentioned this before. At the turn of last century, Israel was nothing but a complete desolate land. And the only, the, 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 there were some swamps there, but in, in a lot of portions of it, but very little, if at all, was being actually cultivated. Mark Twain went over there in the late 1800s and just ridiculed, what, what, this is the promised land? You, you must be kidding me. Uh, but very different scene over there today. It's one of the largest fruit producers in the whole world. Ezekiel chapter 34, being fulfilled before our eyes. Verse 28, and they shall no longer be prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely. No one shall make them afraid. I will raise up them a garden of renown. Now, the King James Version says a plant of renown. And so, again, people, you know, it was great to dig into the Word of God. A plant of renown, of course, may be another reference to Jesus Christ. It is a singular, it's in the singular there. It's a singular noun. Again, King James says plant of renown, similar to the branch in Jeremiah 23. It says, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. So those who think it's not a plant, it's referring to a garden, would just refer to the fact there that it, there's a reference there to their hunger being satisfied. We can all come to our own conclusions. This is not a fundamental issue that we have to agree on. What does the word, the Hebrew word mean in Ezekiel chapter 29, but uh, it's good to, to read into these things. Verse 30, thus they shall know that I, the Lord, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord. So, you know, it's, it's, it's always so important that we understand. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, actually it was on Father's Day, I believe, 
that I was just talking about that verse in Isaiah chapter 55 where Israel is told in Isaiah it says that the Lord is your maker, the Lord is your husband, your husband is your maker. It's so under so important that wives understand supremely that their husband is their maker, that that women understand whether they're married or not, that their husband is the Lord, that men understand that their wife is their maker. And we have to understand, too, that our shepherd is God. Yes, I am an under-shepherd, and so are a number of others in this church, but if you look too, if you zero in too closely on a shepherd, you will eventually be tripped up because your shepherd is not perfect. God is perfect. He's your shepherd. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God. And so just plug your own name wherever it says you there, and that's, a, that's an important verse to reflect and to meditate on. Chapter 35, we have another one of these chapters that we have become so familiar with in these prophetic books. And it was necessary for the Lord to prophesy judgment not only against Israel, but here, uh, but, but also against other nations. And here he's gonna prophesy against Edom. And just because I know you guys need a little intermission here, I'm gonna put up, I'm gonna put up a map just to remind you where Edom is, way down here. Edom. So there's the Dead Sea there, and it's, it's southeast of the Dead Sea. Who were the Edomites again? They were descendants of Jacob. Mount Seir in verse 2 is a reference to Edom, and that's just, there were these gigantic masses of rock in Edom. Petra. You've seen pictures of Petra, right? Just who's been who's been to Petra here? Here's one. Any other Petra? You haven't been to Petra? Oh, I thought you guys had gone on your Israel trip. So one person, Liz, she's been to Petra. Go ask Liz about Petra after the service. It's really there. It's true. We have an eyewitness. But anyway, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir and prophesy against it and say to it, Thus says the Lord, Behold, O Mount Seir. Again, a reference to Edom. I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate, and I shall lay, I shall lay your city's waste. You shall be desolate. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And I understand this particular mountain that represented really the whole nation of Israel. There's just a few small villages there anymore. Used to be a huge population, no longer. This prophecy was fulfilled because, verse 5, you have said, you have had an ancient hatred. It's not okay to bear a grudge. Actually, that's in the Old Testament law. Did you know that? You shall not bear a grudge. That's not a New Testament invention. It's right out of the Old Testament. You shall not bear a grudge. They bore a grudge against their cousin, Israel. 
Be, and it had originated because, you know, Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. He took off. But you know what? It's interesting. It, it, from the record in Genesis, they were reconciled, right? Jacob and Esau were reconciled. Isn't it interesting, though, that people, when given an excuse, an opportunity, will just resurrect some old garbage? You know, I do that, too. That's because that's in our flesh, the flesh left to its own device will just stir up some ancient thing, some ancient hatred. But God takes it real seriously, particularly with us where we have the cross. We've been forgiven so much. You know, that that reference this morning to everything that we've been forgiven of, really spiritual lepers, we've been cleansed. There's no reason to bear a grudge. But he says, because of you had an ancient hatred, hatred and shed blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity. What's that referring to? When Nebuchadnezzar fulfilled Jeremiah's prophecy and came in to Jerusalem and destroyed it, a third of the people fleed. Some of them went down to Edom. They fleed all the way from Jerusalem down to Egypt. Edom, maybe our cousins... I don't know if it was their, you know, 25th cousin. Well, you know, second, third cousin. I completely lose track of, of what that is. But maybe our cousins, hey, it went away. Uh, maybe our cousins will, will, will provide a haven for us. But instead, they lifted up the sword and actually slayed them. That's what they did. And here, the, it, it's a reference to that in verse 5. Therefore, as I say, verse 6 as I live, says the Lord, I will prepare you for blood. Blood you sh- shall pursue you since you have not hated blood. You know, all the violence on TV is not good. You know, they do all these studies that, you know, men have no problem. You know, you know women, are, they don't like uh, the, the violence on TV. They're a li- little less more permissive than men are than sex. We're talking about Christian men, but Christian men, any kind of sex is bad, but violence is okay. No, violence is not okay. God hates blood, it says. By the way, any gratuitous uh, references to sex or portrayals of sex on TV outside of marriage, God hates as well that, but he hates blood. Therefore, blood shall pursue. He hates it. He hates all the, the poison that we see on TV and video games and, and, and other things like that. He hates it. He hates that. Verse 7, Thus I will make Mount Seir most desolate and cut off from it uh, the one who leaves and the one who returns. And I will fill its mountains with the slain. Oh, you hills and in your valleys and all your ravines, those who are slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you perpetually desolate and your cities shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. This is the terrible judgment of the Lord that we'll see this multiplied in the book of Revelation. But I understand in the area of in the area of Edom, they just had so much pride because there are these indefensible, virtually indefensible uh, rocks, uh, I mean, cities that were up on cliffs and it was almost impossible to to, to get over, and, and there's just so much pride there that no one's ever going to get us. I understand that one of these rocks that a population on size of Manhattan, just massive rock, 
But the problem is they didn't have the Lord. They were not trusting, rather, in the Lord. And they began to be a mocker of the Lord's people. Uh, I, I read this week that, um, and you guys, I'm sorry if this is like a really old, old thing, but um, you know, be careful because a professional build the Titanic and amateur build the Ark. Yeah, uh, and and it's because it, it, you know before the Titanic went off, I guess one of the builders said even God couldn't sink this thing. Ugh. Man, not you don't want to get on a boat after someone says that about the boat, you know. But uh, just trusting in the Lord, verse ten, because you have said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine, and we will possess them. Although the Lord was there, therefore, as I live, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you have showed in your hatred against them. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The Bible says he really doesn't like our anger. Our anger misrepresents the Lord Moses before all the people just became angry and he misrepresented God. God said, I'm sorry, you're not going to go into the promised land because he struck the rock when he should have spoken to it. He struck it in his anger. Verse 12, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of of Israel saying they are desolate, they are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Interesting that they weren't speaking against God. They were speaking against his people. Yet, God here says, you have boasted against me. And when Jesus knocked Paul off his donkey on the way to Damascus, he said, why are you persecuting Paul? Why are you persecuting me? Well, in his own mind, Paul was just persecuting the church. I say just persecuting. It was a bride of Christ. It's a serious thing. But when people speak against the church, they're speaking against God. And, and we, do, we do need to take some comfort uh, in that. We do need to take some comfort in that. You know, this past week, the Proposition 8 in California, it was, it was uh, the, the, it was overturned and the, the Supreme Court left that ruling stand. And so um, gay marriage is going to be reinstituted in, in, you know, in, in California. And hey, you know, it's so important that we love and care and bless everyone regardless of their sexual um, orientation. But we can't back down from the truth of God's word. And we can't back down from his truth. We can't redefine marriage and try to run from, not, not in these times, these issues are defining issues for our, our generation. Along with, in my view, you know, evolution, and, and there's, there's a couple defining issues of our generation that are so, so serious. We cannot back away. But when we don't back away, people will be speaking against us. 
if your mission in life is, you know, with this whole issue, is not to be called um, a, a, a hater, a gay basher, you might as well just give up. You're not going to be able to do it. The Bible says, the Bible defines our sexuality. And it says one, one man and one woman within marriage. And, you know, we've got to be sensitive to that. We've got to be sensitive that we live in a fallen world. We've got to be sensitive that we're all born with genes. G-E-N-E-S. Which are all messed up. I know for me, I was a born fornicator. But guess what? God has redeemed us and has a plan for us to change into his image. And we got to be really careful trying to running, run from what the Bible says is the clear God-given truth. People will speak against us we just have to step back and remember that when they speak against you, verse 13, they speak against the Lord. Thank God for Jesus' death. He saved us not only from the penalty of sin, which is death, but the power of sin. And he's given us a power to overcome and become new men and women in Christ.